University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. I don't know about you, but... um... I pretty much couldn't survive without this thing every single day. And it's not because there's some sort of game or app that I'm addicted to. It's, it's the fact that this thing helps me keep my work and my schedule and my communications and my reminders all in sync together. And, and before I had my iPhone uh, to remind me of these things every single day, I used an abundance of, of these things, sticky notes. <laughs> I, I, I would have an idea... I write it on a sticky note. If I needed to remind myself of something, I wrote it on a sticky note. Did you know that these little sticky pads of paper were actually invented by accident? Um, in the late 1960s, a 3M chemist was uh, attempting to create a super uh, strong adhesive when instead he actually invented a super weak adhesive. And this seemingly limited application uh, was kind of shelved for about five years until the scientist was giving a seminar and one of his co-workers was struck with a new idea of how you can use it. And it took years for 3M execs to be convinced that this was a marketable idea. And they failed in the first time in trying to market it. They called it press and peel until they rebranded in the 1980s as post-it notes. And millions of forgetful people have been thanking them ever since. However, ultimately, this this gave folks at 3M the capacity to invent uh, these things came out of creative imagination. A little bit of openness to a new possibility that made a big impact. Today we're wrapping up our series, The Little Big Things, how shared spirit-led commitments drives oversized results. And we're looking at, more often than not, the difference between a thriving and floundering church is whether or not a church can commit to doing the small things that make an incredible difference. And we're examining the book of Acts, who hosts this overarching theme throughout the book in which it states again and again, the church grew in numbers. So for this, we look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together and in one place. Now, before we get to the significance of this passage, we need to understand the context of this passage. We're just 10 days removed from Jesus ascending into the clouds. We're just days away from Jesus after resurrecting from his brutal murder, walking among the disciples for 40 days, forgiving them, encouraging them, and reminding them of all the things that he taught them, only to ascend into heaven, leaving them behind, carrying his good work of redeeming the world. Can can you imagine the utter bewilderment that the disciples must have felt over the last 10 days? Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster they had been experiencing from the moment of Jesus' arrest to his brutal execution to the fear of not knowing what was next to the jolt of elation of experiencing his resurrection to the restored hope that Jesus would be with them to experience and then only to have him return back to the Father? 
And while Jesus empowered them with some of the most remarkable words of Scripture, Mark records it this, or Matthew records it this way, All authority of heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Or Luke records it this way, But you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit when it comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The disciples were still in the experience of the excitement and apprehension of what was unknown and what was uncertain. And so they find themselves gathered 10 days after Jesus has left them on the day of Pentecost, a day that commemorates God giving the Torah, the law, to Moses on Mount Sinai. And they gathered to do what they knew from childhood, a day of celebration, a day of feast, because they didn't know what else to do. And I think if we pause for just a second, we can reflect on just how much we can connect with the disciples at this moment, knowing that we too can experience the unknown and uncertain future, personally and collectively as a church. We noted in full detail just how much this pandemic has, has rocked our perception of the world, our lives, and what we had planned. Consider just how much of your life has been upended and changed by the results of nearly 24 months of this ordeal. And, and you don't have to be one of the millions of people that have lost their jobs or homes or family members or lives as a result of COVID-19 to feel the full effects of it. Now think about the way that it's affected countless churches across the world. Just, just this experience alone creates anxiety and frustration about what's next and who we will be with all of this. And the pandemic has accelerated the fear of the unknown in a rapidly changing world as many churches face a world that uh, is, is dealing with declining memberships, aging buildings, the the failing once thriving ministries, and the drastic shift of how people within the community relate to the institutional church. You know, the unknown raises a gambit of emotions from disappointment to frustration, egotism to timidity, grief and anxiety, doubt and fear, depression and paralysis. And what's fascinating about the human body is there's all sorts of natural Uh, psychological and then physiological responses to the unknown. Physiologically, our body responds to the unknown with a myriad of ways, including and not limited to a higher heart rate, irregular breathing, a surge of adrenaline resulting from that famous fight, flight, or freeze, the avoidance of the moment uh, and people associated with it, a loss of sleep, intestinal discomfort, and chest tightness. And if these are the diversity of ways that our body responds to the unknown, imagine what the emotional and psychological responses to an organization, such as the church, when facing the unknown. So yeah, we can relate to the disciples on a personal level and and collectively on a church level as we too face unknown and uncertain future. But look at what happens in verse 2. It says, suddenly a cloud, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
I have a small confession to make. Uh, I have somewhat of a malevolent history of scaring people. Uh, I, I must confess that I take great joy in seeing people jump out of their shoes at unexpected shock and fear. And most likely, it's going to be my wife and my children who are the victims of me hiding behind a door in our house to scare the bejesus out of them. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've scared Jennifer, making her jump three feet in the air, only to receive her vicious right hook on my arm, reminding me that I made an awful choice. But honestly, this all stems from my oldest brothers who made it their childhood mission to scare me as much as possible. And I don't have time to go into the story of the time that one of them hid in my bedroom closet for over an hour, waiting just for the moment of me to fall asleep, only to jump out of the closet. And as a result, for years, I checked the closet before I got in bed every single night. So what in the name of the Holy Ghost just happened in our text? One minute the disciples are together, presumably sharing a meal and maybe even praying together. And the next minute, an event of epic proportion begins to take place in front of their eyes and within their bodies. Hear how Eugene Peterson describes it in the message. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, a gale force. No one can tell where it came from that filled the whole building. Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started to speak in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. There are a lot of theological metaphors that we don't have time to unpack now, but suffice it to say that the promise of the Holy Spirit, numerous times from the lips of Jesus in his time with the disciples, has finally come true. The Holy Spirit has filled this space and filled their bodies. And the Holy Spirit, as described in other parts of the scripture, is portrayed as breath or wind or fire. And all such descriptions are attempting to explain what was experienced by the first humans that had life breathed into their lungs. Or the pillar of fire that guided the Hebrew people through the wilderness. Or the flame that came down from heaven to burn up the sacrifice with the help of Elijah the prophet. Or the dove that descended from heaven at Jesus' baptism. The Spirit, as described by Jesus, would remind the disciples of everything that he taught them and give them the power to do even greater miracles than even Jesus himself performed and would be a companion with them as they fulfilled the work of the kingdom. Think about that for just a second. To do even greater miracles than Jesus performed. Such power and authority is not a subtle breeze. It's a gale force wind. It's a consuming fire. But the most curious thing was that all the disciples began to speak in languages that were not their own. And Luke expands this in verse 5. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, and Egypt and all parts of Libya near uh, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? 
But here's a key verse in verse 13. It says, Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. The magnitude and power of this moment is, is palpable. I can't even begin to imagine what this experience must have been like for those who had experienced it and witnessed it. Imagine what it felt like the Holy Spirit filling you intentionally and you begin to speak in a language that you've never spoken before. Among a diversity of people present that you have never known before. And they can understand you. But apparently not everyone in the gathering was filled with awe in this moment. In fact, some found it quite amusing believing that they were speaking gibberish or that they were drunk out of their mind. And they did find it funny because they thought it was ridiculous. Maybe they thought it was false religiosity or self-righteous facade of religious piety to feign some sort of spiritual authority. Or they found it amusing because they thought they were absolutely ludicrous. Believing beyond their understanding of how God works and moves in the world. Could it be that sometimes we are consumed with what is known and certain that we fail to see God working right in front of us? Let's do an experiment. I'm going to show you a video in just a second of teenagers playing a basketball. And I want you to count the number of times the players in white pass the ball. And whoever accurately counts the number, passes, will receive a prize. Let's watch. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. All right, so who has the correct answer? 16. All right, heard in the back. We got a prize for you afterwards. We got that number correct, 16. But did you notice the gorilla? Most, most have seen the video before. You're like, oh, I'm an expert. I've seen the gorilla. I know to look for the gorilla. And you probably saw the gorilla. But did you also notice that the curtain changed colors? That one of the players in black left the game altogether. Let's watch it again. Players wearing white passed the ball. See, when we're looking for dribble count, or even when we're expecting the gorilla, we often miss other unexpected events. And if we don't see or expect the gorilla in our lives, what else are we unable to see that's right in front of us? This is what the amused group is experiencing at Pentecost. This is often what we experience in our lives when it comes to how God moves and works among us. This is often what happens within the church. More often than not, than we care to admit, those that know everything or believe genuinely 
and what will happen next cloud the church's ability to see what new things God is doing, especially in a time of the unknown and uncertain future. Like some within the group on Pentecost, we must ask ourselves a challenging question. Do we lack holy imagination? Intellectually, what was happening in this moment made no sense whatsoever. How can they go from one second a gathering together to the next second being in this chaos? Logically, how can people speak a language they've never spoken before? How can God do something that has never been seen or experienced before? Is this really at God work within their lives? How much of our lives are shared around our limited understanding of how God moves and works in our lives and the world? How much of logical understanding of God is based around our limited experience with God? How much of our willingness to do something in certain ways is based on our controlled persuasions of what we expect and want in our lives and for the church? How much are we willing to not go there because we don't know what is possible or because it's outside of what we can understand? This moment at Pentecost punches us right in the spiritual mouths of our understanding of God and its implications for our lives. Just how much is God abiding in the unknown and uncertain And do we have the holy imagination to go there and to believe in it? See, peeling back the layers of God exposes more and more to our need for imaginative qualities and its necessity in faith. But look at what happens in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. I imagine Peter was just bewildered and and confused as what was going on as those who experienced this rush of wind, the tongues of fire and speaking in different languages and the laughter of some within the group. But Peter, who walked with Jesus for three years, who experienced the elation of being the right-hand man of Jesus, to the sorrow of betraying Jesus in his most dire need, only to experience the grace of restoration, sees what's happening in this moment. His understanding of God and how God works in the world had been drastically altered from the last three years from limitation as a common devotee of the one true Hebrew faith. He's witnessed a common carpenter call the most unlikely people to follow him in a new way. The miracles of sickness made well, sight restored to the blind, demon possessed, freed from their captives, and the dead resurrected to life. He took the countless times with Jesus that Jesus shook the boundaries of religion and society and politics, creating an inclusive openness for all in God's kingdom. And because of all these things, Peter was acutely aware of the faith required to follow Jesus. And so he knew what was happening in this moment and wanted to give substantive spiritual formation to all those who experienced it. And so he spoke up and addressed the crowd, with one of the most remarkable speeches recorded in the Bible. And what we can learn from Peter is that holy imagination is a byproduct of genuine faith in Jesus. Maybe Jesus meant more than we thought when he said, unless you receive the kingdom of God as a child, you can have no part of it. Most of us, when we heard this text interpreted as, we should have faith in God of dependence and innocence and powerlessness. And yes, it is all these things, but also something imaginatively more. 
When I was a child, my favorite story was James Barry's Peter Pan. Imagine as a boy uh, who never grew up inviting me onto uh, an adventure to Neverland, fighting pirates and swimming with mermaids. Did you know the original story is not the one we have today? Originally, Barry's story proclaimed that if you simply had happy thoughts, you could fly. And apparently children across London were leaping out their windows and jumping with the happiest thoughts in their minds as they plummeted to broken arms, legs, and even death. And so he creatively changed the story to say that unless you have pixie dust and happy thoughts, you can fly. Children have wonderful imaginations. It's why I was Robin Hood in Sherwood Forest in my backyard in Alabama, or Han Solo when I was riding my bike, which was actually the Millennium Falcon, throughout my neighborhood. Most children can pick up the ordinary objects, a box or a piece of clothes, and, and see potential for a fort, a superhero cape, spending hours pretending and role-playing. But it goes beyond just mere play. Psychologists have proven that creative play leads to the development of social, emotional, creative, physical, lingual, and problem-solving skills within children. But at some point in our growing up, we stopped playing. We stopped being creative. And everything began to be predictably constructed for control of life and world. So maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about when he called us to a childlike faith, one that opens us up to a childlike imagination. And maybe we fail to see God at work in our lives and in the world around us because we stop believing imaginatively. Maybe we fail to embrace our Pentecost moment, both individually and as a church, because we lack the holy imagination necessary to believe and to lean into it. Imagination helps broaden our understanding of the power and intellect of God. Imagination helps us comprehend how lowly will rise up, how the hungry will be well-fed. Imagination helps us fathom how an ancient future can be navigated through the leadership of God. But let's see what happens when the people in the church embrace a holy imagination. It says this in verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Of course, this is what happened. Of course, the church grew. Of course, people came to follow Jesus. So may we come to see that holy imagination leads to thriving. Recent historians and psychiatrists and political scientists evaluated all American presidents, and they determined the least effective leaders were those that followed the will of the people and the precedent set by their predecessors. And the greatest among the presidents were those who challenged the status quo, brought sweeping change, and improved the lot of the country. But these behaviors were completely unrelated to whether they cared deeply about public approval and social harmony. So take, for example, Abraham Lincoln. The 16th president is usually regarded as one of the greatest of all American presidents. When experts rated Lincoln on the desire to please others and avoid conflict, Abe scored the highest among them all. He devoted four hours a day to holding office with citizens and pardoning deserters during the Civil War. 
Before signing the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln agonized for six months over whether he could free slaves. He questioned whether it was his constitutional authority. He worried the decision might lose the support of border states, forfeit the war, and destroy the Union. Lincoln's brilliance was his ability to recognize his position and yet consider an alternative perspective. As W.E. Du Bois said, he was one of you, and yet he became Abraham Lincoln. What we can learn from Pentecost is that holy imagination requires faith-centered risk-taking together. In his book, Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World, Adam Grant writes, ultimately the people who choose to champion originality are the ones who propel us forward. They feel the same fear, the same doubt as the rest of us. What sets them apart is to take action anyways. They know in their heart that failing would yield less regret than failing to try. How many of the decisions that we make in our life are calculated risks? How often do we not do that or go there or say that because we've already calculated a chance of something going wrong in our minds? And so we stay silent. We stay put. We don't go there. But how much has certainty disabled us from actually following the leadership of God into uncharted, unknown, and uncertain futures? And if this is how we are in our lives, what do you think that means for the church? What risks are we not willing to take because we don't know the outcomes, can't predict the success, or since we've never done it that way before. Folks, if, if P, people like Peter and the early church and Barnabas and the Apostle Paul had not taken faith-centered risks, the church would still be a Jerusalem-centric small band of religious outcasts. But these people were willing to take a risk for the sake of advancing the radical, compassionate message and ministry of Jesus Christ. And because of their decision, the world was transformed. Holy imagination requires we open our lives to God's great possibilities and then do something about it. And so University Baptist Church of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, what is God doing in our midst? Do we have the holy imagination to see and to understand how God is leading us? And will we have the faith required to do something about it? Will we step into this moment individually and collectively to allow the Spirit of God to do something remarkable in our lives and through the church? The great Albert Einstein once said, Imagination is more important than knowledge. For knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress and giving birth to transformation. For our time of reflection this morning, we want to invite you to your worship guide. In your worship guide this morning, you should have found some sticky notes. And there's multiple sticky notes in there because we want, to, want you to write some things down that you're going to both keep for yourself and you're going to post on the windows on your way out of worship this morning. We spent the last several months looking at the little big things, 
the expressions of what it means to be spirit-led, formation, relationships, missions, generosity, dynamic faith-sharing, intergenerational connections, and volunteering. We've had conversations here in worship. You've had conversations in your spiritual formation and Sunday school classes all around these things. And so this morning, in a moment of contemplation, we want you to consider holy imagination. What God is calling you to as an individual as part of University Baptist Church, and what God is possibly calling us as a faith community to. And as you begin to think about these things, maybe it's an area of ministry we're already committed to, but we need to give more emphasis. Maybe it's something we haven't even considered, and you think that God is leading us to consider those things. And again, we want you to write two copies of this. One to keep for yourself and to be praying for this week and in the months to come. And one on your way out of worship this morning to put on the windows heading out into the narthex. Let's enter into a time of reflection and response, writing down what God is speaking to us, both individually and collectively as a faith community.